0: Hi, this is Eric Weiner, author of the Socrates Express, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling, one of the great interviewers of all time.
1: Hello, readers. Ryan Holiday is a speaker, author, and strategist, much of which is based around his abilities as a thinker and writer on ancient philosophy and its place in everyday life. His books include The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and the number one New York Times bestseller Stillness is the Key. His new one, co-authored with Stephen Hanselman, is Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. Ryan, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for the time today. Now, Ryan, to provide some context for listeners who are unfamiliar, what is Stoicism?
0: So I think we should we should make a distinction between sort of the word Stoic and Stoicism. The word Stoic means has no emotion. Stoicism is a vibrant philosophy from ancient Greece and Rome that's been sort of the secret formula behind the success of everyone from emperors to playwrights and generals and merchants. And so I write about how that philosophy can help us today in the modern world rather than tell people to suppress their emotions and pretend they're robots.
1: Now, this book actually focuses more on the lives and less on the words of a number of great thinkers. Why is that?
0: Well, you know, it's always interesting, of course, to look at what people have said or written, but I think ultimately we accept that what matters is who you are and what you do. And so Stoicism is primarily a philosophy of action, a philosophy that's supposed to help one in the world. And so I wanted to really look at who were the Stoics? What was Seneca like? What was Epictetus like? What was Cato like? What was Cicero like? What was Marcus Aurelius like? And did they actually live up to what they believe, and what lessons can we learn in our own lives from these great men and women who lived in a world, although very distant from ours, not actually that different.
1: How does the origin of Stoicism fittingly involve a tragedy?
0: Well, if we see Stoicism as a philosophy that in a lot of ways helps us overcome difficulty and adversity, obviously it would be somewhat strange if it was invented in the classroom or, (laughs) you know, invented by some spoiled rich person or whatever. The idea that Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, was a successful merchant who loses everything in a shipwreck and essentially washes up in Athens completely penniless and manages to rebuild his life and find purpose and meaning in the difficulty and suffering that he experiences through the exploration and the study of philosophy, to me, is just a great example. It's proof, as we're talking about that this is a philosophy you can live and you can apply. And the, the first tenet of that is, look, we don't control what happens, whether it's a shipwreck or a bankruptcy or a you know a, a pandemic, but we control how we respond to that.
1: What did Zeno mean by perception plus assent equals knowledge?
0: I think the tricky thing about philosophy is that's obviously what you read, and then it's obviously what you experience. There's what you know, and there's what you feel. And I think wisdom, which is this sort of key virtue that we're all working towards, is sort of a an amalgamation, a culmination of all these things coming together.
1: Why did Cleanthes, who came from meager beginnings, say that being a servant is the perfect profession for a philosopher?
0: Well, his point was that if the pursuit of one's own self-development and self-improvement is a priority, to take on a busy career that consumes all your time and energy might not actually get you where you want to go. So professionally, you might be very successful, but personally, you know, your life could be a mess. And so Cleanthes basically works as a manual laborer. He waters the gardens of the rich citizens of Athens but he loves this because it gives him the chance to study and practice and explore and discuss and ruminate on all these important ideas. So I'm not saying everyone should quit their job and become a janitor, but I am saying that oftentimes we say professional success is important, but what's really successful is happy family, dealing with my personal issues, so on and so forth. Then when you actually look at where we choose to direct the majority of our time it's not at those things
1: well as far as the servant idea specifically goes like even leaders even bosses if they are doing it correctly in a way they are serving their employees
0: i think that's right Yeah, the idea of a servant leadership and certainly marcus aurelius who becomes the most powerful man in the world talks about over and over again that he doesn't own anything he's not powerful He works for the country. He works for the Senate. He even says this at one point to the Senate. He goes, even the house I live in does not belong to me. (laughs) So I do think the idea of being a servant leader is an important spin on that idea for sure.
1: One of the first major disagreements among Stoics had to do with preconceived rules. How so?
0: Well, it seems kind of silly in retrospect, but the idea of could there be sort of aphorisms or maxims that you try to observe I've been lucky enough to speak to a lot of professional sports teams. You walked into the Spurs locker room, you'd see codes of conduct or rules or affirmations on the wall. Some of the early Stoics thought maybe this was cheating, that like you shouldn't need these reminders. You should just know them, right? But I think it's a more common sense approach that it's helpful to have these little maxims. And actually, Marcus Aurelius would talk about that we should have what he calls the epithets for the self, like little words. And I actually have On my computer, I'm talking to you right now, I have six words that I try to live by that are reminders of who I want to be. Obviously, I intuitively already know them, but the idea that I'm magically going to live up to them all the time is not right. Sometimes we need to be brought back on track.
1: What are those six words?
0: So I have honest, calm, fair, father, brave, generous, which is pretty similar to the four... Oh, and then I have the seventh word I have is still, which you know, the idea of just sort of inner peace. But the Stoic virtues, I carry a coin in my pocket with the four Stoic virtues on them. The Stoic virtues are courage, temperance, which means moderation, justice and wisdom. So I think that the philosophy is pretty simple, but it actually executing them is the difficult part.
1: Aristo operated around a central principle to live in a state of indifference to everything that is between virtue and vice, making no distinction between things that are nice to have but dangerous in excess. Do you agree with that? So his point was
0: kind of a very black and white argument that is basically only good or bad and nothing in between. And there's a seductiveness to that and straightforwardness to it. But the reality is there is stuff in between. So the Stoics would say, like, okay, sure, there's good and evil, but where does financial success or fame or good looks or any of the other things that can occur in life, right, or that people aspire to in life, where do those fit in? And Aristos, the monk, the superhuman that says, well, I don't care about any of those things. But I think the more practical Stoics are arguing Look, we're not saying that being rich is good, but it's also probably wrong to say that it's bad, provided that one doesn't acquire wealth through unethical means. So how should we view something like that, right? And the Stoics come up with this idea of preferred indifference. So Seneca says, look, it's probably better to be tall than short. But if you're born short, so be it a wise or good person will manage to make the most of that. So it's sort of a weird philosophical riddle, but I think a common sense helps us cut right through it.
1: Chrysippus was a distance runner. How did this help him as a stoic?
0: Well, I just love the idea that these weren't like nerds. These were people <laughs> who played sports, who did yeah. things. And as a runner myself, What you learn as a runner is that the race is not really against other people. The race is always against yourself, against your own limitations, against your own previous best time. So I think just as far as a philosophy of discipline and perseverance and endurance, it's a great metaphor. But he also, as a competitor, developed something he calls the no shoving rule, which is basically like, look, you you should want to win and you should want to be the best. But there are clear lines we have to draw about what we're willing to do. In order to accomplish that and that to gain an advantage at the expense of someone else is not really winning in fact it's hurting all of us in that we all sort of are connected as part of a larger whole
1: there are a couple of different versions of how chrysippus died which is your favorite
0: well i mean it's hard not to love the idea that this supposedly sort of dour emotionless stoic died of laughter he was sitting on his front porch and a donkey walked by and began to eat food out of his garden and Chrysippus told this joke and it's one of these sort of you had to be there jokes that I don't even understand but the story is that he laughs so hard he was so old that you know he dies maybe has a heart attack or I don't know what it is But I just love the idea of a man literally
1: dying of laughter. It's just a (laughs) wonderful thing. If we could all only go out like that. Totally. Uh, Why is Zeno of Tarsus evidence that being courageous doesn't necessarily involve doing something outwardly heroic?
0: You know, if I was to draw a modern analogy, I think, you know, we live in these times of political polarization, extremism, and... That's who everyone wants to be. They want to be the best. They want to be the furthest out. They want to be the one pioneering the new thing. But the reality is the system depends on the maintainers. It depends on the moderates, right? And Zeno of Tarsus is a moderate, unsung, ordinary leader of the Stoic school who helped shepherd it from the close of one era to another. He's like your Millard Fillmore, one of these other forgotten presidents that just does the job and is mostly forgotten by history. Not everyone needs to be Napoleon.
1: Diogenes of Babylon, not to be confused with Diogenes the cynic who slept in barrels and masturbated in public, was the fifth leader of Stoa. Why had Rome banned philosophers when Diogenes visited from Athens in 155 BC?
0: They believed that the philosophers were somehow going to corrupt the youth were this transgressive destabilizing force and so it's ironic that stoicism would become so associated with Rome and specifically with a man named Cato the Younger whose great grandfather who we refer to as Cato the Elder was actually the one behind the ban of the stoic philosophers so it's just sort of a funny quirk of history but you know it's like So many things have been banned throughout history that in retrospect, it makes no sense. But at one point, yeah, even philosophy was considered disruptive.
1: The old corrupting the youth excuse is uh, also a very common one when trying to do those sorts of things. But why was this trek so important that Diogenes of Babylon had taken to Rome?
0: He not only brings Stoicism to Rome, but he's really bringing this Greek thinking to Rome. So Rome is this Hard, scrappy, militaristic culture, and Greece is the artistic, creative, philosophical culture. And it's really the merging of these two that creates what becomes the Great Roman Empire.
1: How did Antipater evolve the Stoic idea of family?
0: Again, we think philosophy is like these abstract questions. Antipater saw the role of the philosophy teacher to instruct people how to find the right spouse and whether marriage was something important to think about, how one should raise their children, what our obligations as citizens and householders happen to be. So he just had this idea of marriage being more than a transaction, more than a legal arrangement. It was an opportunity really to apply philosophy to one of the most trying things that a human being can do, which is join their life with another person and then potentially create additional lives after that.
1: Is that why he's credited for moving Stoics into more of a common sense direction?
0: I think so. Yeah, he was just concerned with the practical, ethical questions of life. Okay, you're selling your house. What obligations do you have to disclose this or that to the buyer? He's really interested in all the dilemmas that we face as human beings, which Again, I just love the idea of, you know, I'm selling my house. I have to tell them there's an issue with the pipes. It's like somebody listening could have had that exact same dilemma early this morning. We think that the world was so distant, but I mean, people are people and life is life. Hmm.
1: What is the stoic idea of oikiosis and how relevant is this concept today?
0: The Stoics believe that we have this affinity, this goodness in us that makes us part of a larger whole. Marcus Aurelius talks about that the purpose of life is to be a good person and to do good things for other people. The idea of the common good is a theme you just see throughout the Stoics. So, I mean, they would have been fascinated with the mask debate that we're having right now, <laughs> the, the, you can't tell me what to do versus the well, what if you spread sickness to a chemotherapy patient or an elderly person? And, you know, if we all come together and we all sacrifice a little bit, then we can help all sorts of people. And some people find that to be deeply troubling and other people are like, sign me up. And I think the Stoics were struggling with that even 2,500 years ago.
1: Who was Scipio and was he a friend or foe to the Stoics? A
0: huge friend. I mean, he's one of the most powerful men in the Roman Empire. He rules most of Greece on behalf of the empire. And he subsidized the Stoics. He let them meet in his houses. He hired them as his advisors. So he was really one of the first truly powerful Stoics to see the benefits of applying these principles and brings the early Stoics into the halls of power, so to speak.
1: Panitius saw life as a continual combat with others. How did he prepare himself for this constant battle?
0: I don't think he meant that as a like, it's me against you. I think he saw it as he has this metaphor of the philosopher as the boxer, the pancratist, which is sort of an early form of UFC in ancient Rome. He saw life as a battle and a battle against temptation, a battle against bad luck, a battle against our own bodies, a battle against time, a battle against ignorance. So I think he just saw and this isn't a, oh, let me lay back on my chair and just ponder big ideas. He really saw the Stoic as a fighter, a fighter for truth, a fighter for goodness, a fighter for many things.
1: Why is Publius, Rutilius, Rufus an example of doing the right thing potentially costing you everything?
0: What does cost him everything, he's one of the few uncorrupt political leaders in Rome at this time, and as would happen, finds himself accused of corruption by precisely the people who are looting the system. Sometimes a good person, just by nature of being good, is kind of an indictment against the other people around them. And so he finds himself brought up on these trumped-up charges, but he never breaks They exile him and he just goes quietly back about his business and is sort of a monument for that unbreakable commitment to what's right, even though, you know, it ends up costing him everything.
1: Is there an example from your life where doing the right thing cost you something?
0: Certainly, I was the director of marketing in American Apparel for a number of years and sort of towards the end, as the company, the wheels come off the company, the CEO sort of loses his grip on things. I was involved in the effort to throw him out and it was a horrendous experience. We often think, why don't people do the right thing? And the truth is, we don't often appreciate people when they're doing the right thing. So there were death threats and there was endless headaches and legal depositions. And it was just a months long nightmare that ultimately wasn't even successful. Right? But you have to sort of be able to go, here's what I think is the right decision I'm going to make it. I'm going to stick with it. And I'm not going to let anyone bully me off of the stand that I've taken. And I think essentially what they were trying to do to Rutilius Rufus was to say, look, you can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And if you do the easy way, we're going to give you stuff. But if you stick with the hard way, it's going to cost you and you're going to regret it. And he refused to play along with that.
1: Damn shame about American Apparel. Still the best T-shirt that I've ever worn.
0: I know. I've got a few of them left, but they are on their last legs.
1: Poseidonius was wary of ambitious people. Why is that? And is there a line between ambition going from a positive to a negative?
0: Well, let's go back to the American Apparel thing. I got to see up close a guy that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, ran a huge company, was famous, surrounded by beautiful women, power and influence. I wouldn't have traded places with him for 10 times that, right? It was a miserable way of living, and it was ultimately, I think, kind of its own punishment. I don't think we have to make this political, but it'd be nice to be president. I don't think it'd be nice to live inside Donald Trump's brain. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, So the Stoics were, as observers of power, often up close and personal with these folks, And they really saw that sometimes the worst thing you could do to someone is to give them everything they thought they wanted.
1: Cicero is not a Stoic. You state that very clearly at the start of the chapter bearing his name. So why does he receive his own chapter in this book?
0: Well, he was certainly fascinated with Stoicism. just in the way that I've written a number of books about Stoicism, that's really the role that Cicero plays. He writes about it all the time. and In fact, he's the source for much of what we know about the Stoics because he preserved so many of their classic works. But what's fascinating about him is that although he writes about it and thinks about it and does such an eloquent job talking about it, he can't really bring himself to believe it. And it gets him into trouble and eventually... He has this opportunity to have been a great hero, but instead goes down in history as a vacillating coward.
1: Yeah, Cicero usually did the right thing. I found that interesting, but it also came with this caveat that it was helping him out. He usually had something to gain from that good deed. Did he ever fall prey to serious corruption?
0: Not corruption in the sense that he was rigging elections or taking bribes, but he amasses this enormous fortune By getting himself named in all these different people's wills. As Rome breaks out into a civil war, he goes, Well, I'm going to sit back and I'll just side with whoever wins. And so it's not so much corruption as it is a lack of a strong moral compass or really the integrity that might have made making some hard decisions easier to make. I mean, they still would have been hard and they would have cost him. But it's like he just didn't have that backbone that we want from great leaders.
1: So how did Cicero die and what happened to his remains?
0: I mean, he had his head cut off and his tongue cut out and his hands cut off, too. I mean, it was as brutal as you could possibly imagine. So what does this cowardice ultimately win him? He still ends up a foul of the people who potentially he could have stopped had he been a little bit more courageous earlier on.
1: You mentioned Cato the Younger a bit earlier. He was another fascinating character in Lives of the Stoics. He was pushed to the Stoic ways to balance out an early intensity and anger. The result was a sort of indifference that Aristo preached, except for this unflinching desire to do what was right. He was an exceptional orator and a leader of men. But do you agree with Cicero's critique that he was too idealistic for his own good?
0: There are parts of that in him. I mean, if Cicero lacks the backbone, Cato is like tragically inflexible. And if the two could have merged, they might have been the exact savior that Rome needed. It's obviously good to be principled. But if you can't compromise, if you can't work with others, if you walk around thinking that you're perfect and everyone else is flawed, that's not usually a great approach for bridging differences.
1: Hmm. Athena Doris was a guy who trained numerous leaders, including Octavian, who went on to become Augustus Caesar, of course. I loved how he advised leaders to counterbalance the grind and stress of leading politically. How was that?
0: So I mentioned that idea of stillness. If the leader isn't taking time to reflect, if the leader doesn't have hobbies, if the leader isn't able to disconnect or rest, eventually they're going to break up or crack up. And I think the Stoics were certainly hard workers. They were determined. They had incredible amounts of endurance, but they also stood, understood the importance of stillness and rest and relaxation.
1: What do we know about Agripenis other than the fact that he would have to change his name to avoid unrelenting torment in modern times?
0: I know. I was just going to say that other than his funny name, The main thing we know about him is he was just kind of a hilarious badass. There's a story where he's asked by a philosopher, hey, are you going to go to this party that Nero is throwing? And he says, are you going? And the guy says, sorry, the guy asked if he should go. And Agrippina says, yes. And the guy says, but you're not going? And Agrippina says, that's because I didn't even think about it. For him, it was (laughs) to go to the party of this dictator. It was inconceivable to him. He was a determined guy. He marched to the beat of his own drummer. And he did this even though it eventually led to him being exiled.
1: Seneca is another one of these figures that we had talked about earlier in our conversation today. He is one of the most widely read Stoics. He also covers death more than most Stoics. Why is this? And what is your favorite idea from his philosophizing on death? He faced death. He had probably
0: tuberculosis. So from an early age, he was quite aware of his own mortality. But he talks about death because, you know, he's sentenced to death by basically two different emperors. He was eventually killed by Nero. But the most beautiful idea on this from him, I think, is he says, you know, don't think of death as something that lies in the future. Think about it as something that's happening right now. He says, we're dying every day. It's almost noon here in Texas. You know, I've already died half of the day. (laughs) And to think, Not how many years do you have left, but how many years have you already died? It helps put the decisions that you make in perspective, right? You're like, oh, agreeing to go spend five hours at something you don't want to do is not just uncomfortable. You're paying for that with something you can never, ever get back.
1: Seneca served under Nero even after the first time Nero tried to murder his own mom.
0: Why did he
1: continue to serve under him?
0: look, it's a modern dilemma. I mean, there are people in the Trump administration that deeply disagree with Trump,
1: Hmm. but
0: they tell themselves, hey, if I leave someone worse, will do it. Or they say, you know, my job is not to be political. My job is not to have an opinion on the president. My job is to, I don't know, work on nuclear weapons or be the ambassador to Denmark or whatever it is. Right. And I think what Seneca tried to tell himself was that whoever came after Nero could be worse, that he didn't choose this job, it was chosen for him. And so really his duty was to do a great job at it. But I think in the more modern context we go, but that means you're complicit in the decisions that Nero makes. And in retrospect, that didn't age well.
1: Since he did cover death so frequently, how and why did Seneca finally meet his maker?
0: Well, it was the crime returning upon its teacher. Eventually, Nero decides that Seneca's a liability and he sends his goons to demand that Seneca commit suicide. And here, this is the rubber meeting the road. This is the guy who's talked about death, who's talked about facing death bravely, and he's forced to die by his own hand. And from what we know, and there's lots of beautiful paintings about it and stories about it, but he does. He comforts his friends. He sort of makes some final words that kind of echo into eternity and then marches bravely to the end of life.
1: Why was Thracia Petus the anti-Seneca with regard to his relations and dealing with Nero?
0: So Seneca said, hey, maybe on the inside I could do good. And I think Thracia said, maybe from the outside I can stop this. And I think ultimately we admire the latter more than the former. But, you know, as the Senate was rubber stamping Nero's murders, as they were falling over themselves to praise him, Thracia was drawing the line and he was refusing to be complicit. And he did this knowing that ultimately it would probably end the same way for him as it did for Seneca. But he thought at the very least, maybe you could make an example for history, or maybe he just believed there was a one in a million chance he might be successful. And that was a gamble he was willing to make.
1: Unfortunately, Thracia met the same fate as Seneca. Given the option by Nero, how did he choose to die?
0: Also suicide, forced to commit suicide. He mirrors Seneca in that way, but he drops this badass one-liner as he goes out. He says, Nero can kill me, but he can't harm me. And what he means is that Nero may have power of life or death over me, but he doesn't have the power to make me betray my conscience. And if we think about Seneca, right, Although Nero does kill Seneca, he also implicates him in the ugliness of what he was responsible for. And that's just not the case with Gracia.
1: To go ahead and complete the trifecta, how did Nero eventually die?
0: Also suicide. That's the truth about gangsters and criminals and tyrants. is never tends to end well. But he goes out as an incompetent idiot who botches even his own suicide. <laughs>
1: Why was Musonius Rufus known as the Roman Socrates by his peers?
0: Well, a beautiful writer, a beautiful thinker, a beautiful philosopher, but like Socrates, his life was filled with adversity. Seneca is exiled once. Musonius Rufus is exiled at least two times, possibly three times, and according to some sources, four different times. I mean, imagine you're told with a few days notice, you've got to pack up all your stuff and leave and you can never come back. And then years later, you're given a reprieve, you come back, you build your life back, and then boom, a tyrant does the same thing to you again. Just the sheer determination and unbreakableness of Musonius Rufus is one of the most impressive things about
1: him. Why did Musonius consider the sign of a successful philosopher to be silence and not applause from his audience?
0: Well, his point was that, uh, and this is something you, you always struggle with when you give talks, it's like you want to see people engaged and involved, but his point was that means you're probably operating on a pretty surface level. You know, it's like when you're really wowing the audience, they're too spellbound to give much in the way of response. And so his point was that the obligation of a teacher was to drop real wisdom on people, not to get the crowd riled up and entertain them.
1: What was his most out-there belief relative to 5th century Rome?
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem so transgressive now, but he believed that women should be taught philosophy and that virtue didn't have anything to do with gender, and that put him very much in the minority in
1: in ancient Rome. Was he similarly forward-thinking on marriage?
0: Yeah, I mean, he was. The Stoics tended to be pretty forward-thinking on a lot of these social issues, I mean, they weren't perfect. They all owned slaves and believed that to the victors go the spoils and that foreigners were barbarians and things like that. But when they had the opportunity to really think about stuff, I think you see in their views on marriage, their views on ethics, their views on gender equality and so forth to be pretty progressive.
1: How does one suffer and endure toward virtue an ideal at the center of Musonius's teachings?
0: Well, I think that the adversity that Musonius endures, it's not just like, oh, he was a great person and he endured this stuff. It was he became great through what he endured. And had he had an easier life, I'm not sure we'd be talking about him.
1: Many Stoics wrote about freedom. Why did Epictetus come at this subject from a different perspective and how was his philosophy on freedom unique as a result?
0: Well, you know, when you listen to Seneca talk about the importance of freedom, you've got to remember that this is a very rich man. This is the guy who's basically number two in the entire Roman Empire. Marcus Aurelius is the most powerful man in the world. A lot of the other Stoics were rich and commanded armies and were at the top of the social hierarchy. Epictetus was a slave. Epictetus spends the first 30 plus years of his life as a slave, and Roman slavery was incredibly brutal. So he's having to find freedom inside literal captivity. It's like, I can talk about freedom all I want, but if you heard someone who had endured solitary confinement talk about how you find freedom inside yourself, it would just have a greater impact. And that's really the perspective that Epictetus brought to
1: philosophy. How did Epictetus say we should deal with situations outside of our control?
0: essentially to be indifferent to them. You know, his point was you focus on what you control and you ignore the rest.
1: Junius Rusticus became Marcus Aurelius's official tutor in Aurelius's mid-twenties. What did Aurelius credit Junius for instilling in him? Well,
0: first off, he's the one who introduces him to Epictetus. So Marcus Aurelius wouldn't have become the sort of stoic philosopher king without him. But he learns so much from Rusticus. He learns One of my favorite things, he says, I learned never to be satisfied just getting the gist of things, meaning that Rusticus really taught him to go deep in a subject, to understand it inside and out, to not be satisfied with surface level thinking. And I think that becomes part of the core of Marx's greatness.
1: What was Rusticus most known for? Well,
0: unfortunately, as a judge, he oversees the trial of Justin Martyr, one of the early Christians, who'd actually studied some Stoicism. So, you know, he's famous for sending this Christian off to his death. It was an opportunity that I think called for mercy, that called for understanding. And in failing to do that, again, we don't think the Stoics are perfect. He sort of shows us the importance of those things by what he didn't do.
1: Aurelius was the first Stoic to lead the Roman Empire. He was named Emperor of Rome at the age of 40. Power tends to do strange things to people. How did becoming emperor affect Aurelius and why?
0: What's interesting, both Marcus and Nero were chosen at a very young age to be groomed to become king. Both had philosophy teachers. Both had a lot of talent, a lot of drive. And Nero is destroyed by becoming emperor, and Marcus Aurelius becomes great by it. You know, we have this idea that absolute power corrupts, absolutely, but in Marcus's case, he seems to be the exception to the rule. He's made better. I mean, the first thing Marcus does after he becomes emperor is name his stepbrother co-emperor. I mean, have you ever heard of someone getting absolute power and then giving half of it away? Uh,
1: I haven't. Unheard of, for sure. And how did Aurelius respond like a Stoic when Rome's treasury was depleted by plague and endless wars?
0: Yeah, again, you know, we think the ancient world was so distant. I mean, Marcus ruled through what we now refer to as the Antonine Plague, which makes our pandemic look like a walk in the park. Mm. But as Rome's treasury is depleted, he sells off the palace furnishings, his stuff, to pay down Rome's debts. It's just a magnificent moment of leadership.
1: What was his overall philosophy on leadership? Well, he says, do the
0: right thing. The rest doesn't matter. And I I think that's a great rule.
1: Where do you rank Meditations, of course, uh, written by Marcus Aurelius among Stoic writings? And what do you love about that book?
0: To me, it's the best. It's maybe the best philosophical work ever done because it There's no element of performing for the audience. This is just his private thoughts to himself. It's really an astounding document. I can't recommend it enough. I tend to recommend the modern library translation. Don't just get the free one you can get off the internet. But when you do read it, just know you're reading the private thoughts of the most powerful man in the world trying to get better every day.
1: How did Aurelius write about death?
0: Well, the same way as Seneca. He reminds himself, hey, look, you're not going to live forever. Just because you're powerful doesn't mean the laws of the universe don't apply. And he says, look, live while you can. Don't waste a moment. I carry a coin in my pocket with a quote from Marcus Aurelius on it that I had made. It says, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. And uh, it's a pretty great reminder, in my opinion.
1: This book is all about extracting lessons from the great thinkers in ancient times. But uh, you're a great thinker in modern times, Ryan. What is the best lesson one could learn from how you live your life?
0: Well, that's very kind. I do think the benefit of the book is that I, as an outside observer, get to look at these people and evaluate them. It's much harder for me to to look at myself and go, (laughs) hey, this is the lesson from my life. It feels a bit strange to do that. But I, you know, I feel blessed to be someone who the idea like I make my living writing about what I love to write and think about. And, and I think, although this is a, a moment of difficulty and uncertainty in the world, I think the fact that you can make a living writing books about an obscure school of ancient philosophy should give just about anyone hope they could do whatever they want.
1: Ryan Holiday is a speaker, author, strategist, and much of that is based on his abilities as a thinker and writer on ancient philosophy and its place in everyday life. His books include The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Stillness is the Key. His new one, co-authored with Stephen Hanselman, is Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. Ryan, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Appreciate it. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. Greatly appreciate those listening through Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.